All right. Would you all turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we'll be taking our text from. And as you're turning there, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And I know we've prayed uh, several times already, but uh, we uh, believe here at Westside Baptist Church, in particular when it comes time to share the Word of God, that if we're going to learn anything at all, I say it almost every single week, but if we're going to learn anything at all this morning, it's going to be because God's Spirit is the one who teaches us. Uh, he is the one who opens up the scriptures. He is the one who illuminates and elucidates what the Word of God has to say for us. And we want to humble ourselves in that position so that we are able to learn those things. As Riley said a while ago, that the Word of God would not be offensive to us, but rather we would welcome it into our lives uh, because it is the Word, when we apply it, that makes great change to our life. All right? So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are an awesome and holy God. God, we thank you this morning for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for your word. Lord, you're such a gracious and good God to us just to look at the sunshine today, Lord, and just uh, see a preview of what you have planned for your people in the future. Lord, just to, to go past the gloom of uh, the, the sky and just to see the brilliant sunshine reminds us of a day that is coming. And we thank you for that this morning. But right now, Father, we pray that our hearts would be plowed up and ready to receive the word of God. And God, that you would make effective change in all of us. I pray, God, as Riley prayed for me, Lord, you hide me behind the cross. Father, that you would keep me low and that you would be exalted. Lord Jesus, we desire to see you lifted up and you alone, that you would be glorified in the preaching of the word. And it is our desire this morning that we would preach Christ crucified. And the church said, all right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter this morning, but I'll read a, a few verses at a time and then just kind of unpack uh, where we are at uh, on these things. And this morning's message, you might have noticed if you looked at Facebook, uh, it is titled The X-Rated Church. And you would maybe wonder, what in the world does the X-rated church mean? What, is, what does that have anything to do with today's society? Well, it has a whole lot today, uh, to do with today's society, but also had a whole lot to do with the day in which Paul wrote the church of Corinth. And it was indeed an X-rated church. Uh, I was just talking to uh, one of our folks coming in this morning and probably didn't even realize how it played into it, but he was talking about a pastor uh, who, who was, I guess, from what he had, I don't know, did he have a bed up on the stage? And he and his wife were in the bed, and then he talked about how often that he and his wife uh, and other couples in the church ought to be making love. And by the way, Children's Church, you're dismissed if you aren't gone. Uh, <laughs> I should have had my sunglasses on when I said that. So, uh, but listen, that, that is, that's the day that they were in, and that is the day that we're in, and that is amazing to me that that would even be something that would be coming up uh, rather than simply taking the Word of God and preaching the Word of God for what it says and then letting the Holy Spirit deal with us as He sees fit. Does that make sense? And so when we look at this morning's message, we find Paul addressing the issue of sin that was being tolerated in the church of Corinth. And just as in our day and in his day, it was being downplayed or completely ignored by the body of Christ. Paul in our text this morning issues 
a strong rebuke for the church's lack of remorse and a blatant, ongoing, unchecked sin in the congregation. We see from our text this morning, if you make notes, here will be your major points. There was a report, there was a rebuke, there was a remedy, and finally there is a refined rule. A report, rebuke, remedy, and a refined rule. So let's first look at the report this morning as Paul writes to the church of Corinth. In verse 1 it says this, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. So the first thing that we see in verse 1 is simply the report. The report that had come to Paul. And, and here's what is amazing to me about that report. It was this, that it was well known. He says this report is reported commonly. In other words, it wasn't something that was hidden. It wasn't something that was glossed over. It was something that was well known, not only in the church, but I would also assume that it was well known in the community. And, and as I thought about this, I believe it's important that we would reflect just on that thought. Usually, but not always, what goes on in a local church is also commonly known in the community. You think about that. What is going on inside of a church is commonly known in, in, in the community. You know why that is? I will tell you why that is. Is because we are still, even though we are God's people, a lot of times God's people still didn't get involved with this thing that is called gossip. Amen. Have you ever found that bad news travels a whole lot faster than good news? And so that's how it kind of gets out there, right? Uh, but that, that is not a bad thing. I think we are naive to believe that inside the church, what goes on inside the church is not known in the outside of the community. And that is why Paul was addressing this issue because it was so important that the church understand that the report that was so common among them, he says, listen, that report needs to change because it's hurting the cause of Christ. The report that Paul received says that there is fornication. That word fornication is, we're, we, it's, it's called porneia. And, and porneia is really pretty easy to understand what that is, right? It's where we get our word, pornography. But in particular, what it was saying is, he says, it is a common report or it is well known among you that there is sexual immorality going on inside the church. This wasn't anything new, but it is raised to a different level as we'll look at the text here in a moment. You see, Paul had written a letter previously admonishing them to say, stop with the sexual immorality. It was something that they had dragged into the church from their former lives and they had not left it behind. And we, we covered a lot of that as we began this study. 
But he says it is sexual immorality that is going on inside the church. And the implication was is it was ongoing. It wasn't something that was a one-time situation. It was something that was continuing, even at that moment, to continue on. And the entire church knew about it. But it was a, a particular, strong immorality. Because here's what was going on. If you look at the text there... It says that the specific charge is that it's an ongoing relationship. A man had an ongoing relationship with his father's wife. With his father's wife. Now, let me explain a little bit about that. It's not his mother, right? Otherwise, Paul would have said that. It is his father's wife. So the idea here is, is his father either was widowed and had married again or had divorced and married this woman. Or perhaps because he was a slave, his wife had been sold into slavery, but nonetheless he had a new wife. And evidently now that wife had divorced him, potentially even because of what was going on with the son. And now the son had taken her as his wife. And we say, and that's... I mean, that was just hard for me to say. I'm sure y'all are saying, I mean, I'm trying to follow all the, you know, the X's and O's there. Nonetheless, it was, it was a bad situation. And he says, listen, it is a bad thing. It was a relationship that was forbidden. And Leviticus chapter 18, don't worry about putting this up. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 30. Listen, it was expounding on this law out of the Old Testament that basically said that type of relationship was absolutely unacceptable to the point that the Lord says that anybody who became involved in that type of relationship was to be cut off from his people. Now let me tell you what cut off from his people meant. It meant that they were dragged outside the camp and they were put to death. That's, that's the way that God said it was to be done for a man who would take his father's wife. And we might say, why in the world would God look so serious on such a thing? Can I tell you what marriage is a picture of? Marriage, even in the Old Testament, pointing to the New Testament, is a picture of the bride of Christ and Christ himself. Therefore, it must remain pure. God was serious about it. It was a sin that even the Roman uh, pagan society saw as immoral. And if you know anything about Roman society, there weren't many things that they considered to be immoral. But in this case, they did. There was a statesman by the name of Cicero who said this. Now, he didn't say it at the time. He actually said it before this. But he said concerning this idea of a man marrying his father's wife, he says this, quote, Incredible wickedness, such I never heard in all of my life besides, end quote. So here is somebody who is not a follower of the true God, who looks at that and he says, this is pure wickedness. And that is the report that Paul had received. That is what he heard that was going on in the church of Corinth. He says, sexual immorality taken to another level. And he says, it's commonly known. 
Really what he's doing, it's really a slap in the face to the church leadership in particular. That in his absence, things had gotten so out of control. A commonly known sin that the community knew about, the church knew about. And then let's look at verse 2, and then the first part of verse 6. And it says, verse 2 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. What is he saying here? Well, he gives a rebuke. This is the second point, the rebuke. They were proud of what was going on. That, that phrase there, they were puffed up. They were full of themselves. They were glorying in the idea of what was happening between this man and his father's wife. It, it might have gone something like this, and it may have been something like this in the, the church today. Look how forward-thinking we are. Look how acceptable we are. Look how politically correct we are. We just accept everybody and, and, and we're just so, you know, modern in our thinking. And Paul says, you're puffed up, you're proud, you're boasting in this thing. And he says, far from boasting in it, he says, you ought to be mourning over it. You ought to be grieved over it. But more shocking than the sin itself is the fact <laughs> that they were proud of their view of sin. One commentator said this, the church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin with its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. Let me just throw something out. Perhaps the reason the church in America is so ineffective today in the gospel presentation of Jesus Christ is because there is an overabundance of tolerance of sin within the body of Christ. Amen. Sexual sin in particular is always a problem, has always been a problem. And yet God looks very tough on it. Would you turn with me, and we can put it up if we can, in Revelation chapter 2, in verses 19 through 23. Let me just read that and make a couple of points. We know we're writing to the churches. The Lord usually starts out and gives a commendation. Chapter 2, verse 19, I know thy works and thy charity, love. I know the works and your love and service and faith and your patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest. You allow that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit... What's it say? 
fornication, sexual immorality, and to eat the things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Now, when he's talking about casting her on a bed, that is literally a deathbed. That's what the Lord was talking about. Now, first notice this, that she is a false prophetess. And I can go into something on that. We don't have the time this morning. But allowing her to teach and basically saying, hey, listen, it is okay to carry on sexually in any way that you want to. Now then, let me say this, and I wish I'd wore my sunglasses again in case anybody gets embarrassed and I'd have my sunglasses on and you wouldn't be embarrassed then. But I will say this, God created sex. And God says that everything he created was not only good, but very good. But any time it is taken outside of the confines of marriage, it is called sin. It is a holy thing. It is a good thing. And it is to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are married. Anything outside of that falls into fornication, porneia, sexual immorality. And this woman seduced people to step into that. Long story short, God says, I will take care of her. I will cast her into a deathbed. She will die because of that sin. Those who are committing and continuing that, the idea being that they would be believers and saying that that's okay, he says they're going to be tormented. In other words, they're going to have a really hard time in life unless they repent. And he says, and the ones who refuse to do that, he says, I will take them out of the way at the same time. Now, you know what that is telling us, church, is you better take sin serious because God does. Christ takes his church seriously. And we do too. Know what they say, and it says in, in chapter, or pardon me, in, in verse uh, 2 of 5, the very last part says that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Well, what is that speaking of? Let me just tell you what he's speaking of, and then we're going to get into our next point, the remedy. What he's speaking of there is this, church discipline. And you say, what? What in the world is church discipline? You see, a lot of the churches in America today don't even have a concept of what church discipline is. They have no clue that God calls the church to discipline the members of that church if they err in sin. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think when it comes to discipline, you know, I raised three kids, love them all, great kids, four grandchildren, love them, but there are times that I had had to discipline my children, and there have been times, believe it or not, that the old gray papa has had to discipline his grandchildren, and it is not because I decided to wake up one morning saying, you know what, I think I'll just make them miserable by, you know, disciplining them. It's usually because they were doing something that is going to be harmful to themselves or to someone else. 
And that is the concept and idea behind church discipline. Paul says, instead of, instead of rejoicing, instead of glorying in what you were doing, he says you should have mourned over this sin and you should have taken him out, removed him. Third point, and we're going to spend some time here. The remedy. Verses 3 through 8. For verily, for I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our, don't miss this, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together and my spirit with power and our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an uh, one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. No, or know ye not, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the remedy that Paul gives to the church for the sinful behavior on part of the sinning brother and the church is to implement church discipline. Now, where I'd like you to just leave your ribbon where it is there, but then I would like you to go to Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to discover what the Lord himself says is how you handle an issue of sin inside the body of Christ. Let me make a couple of points before we begin to walk through this scripture. First of all, you will note that Paul says that he had already passed judgment on this brother. When he says that in verse 3, can I just say this, that that certainly does away with the whole concept that we often hear about this. The first thing that somebody, I've noticed, usually the first thing that somebody will say, especially if they're being confronted in any way, is they will say, well, listen, we just can't judge. That, that would, you would have to do away with what Christ said. You would have to do away with what Peter says. You would have to do away with what Paul writes to many of the churches saying, no, you and I, as a matter of fact, we'll discover here pretty soon when we talk about lawsuits next week, he says, why are you guys going to judges to determine things? Don't you know you'll judge angels? Why aren't you judging things for yourself? And Paul makes it clear. He says, I've already made a judgment in this matter about the brother." You see, we'd have to throw out a great deal of the Bible if we were to simply say, listen, there are things that we don't judge about. I'll clarify in the end. But we need to make judgments. As a matter of fact, it's a poor church that doesn't make judgments. And it's absolutely poor leadership that won't make judgments. But it comes down to what is the heart and motive of the judgments that we make. 
Let me go on to say before I get to Matthew chapter 18, do you know where the first instance of church discipline is found? In the New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story. The church was springing up. They were growing on a daily basis. Matter of fact, thousands were being added. And then people began to sell their goods and help each other out. Some people selling property, bringing it and giving it to uh, the apostles, and they would distribute it to make sure that people were able to eat and, and live uh, while they were hearing the gospel and the message was being preached. And we know the story, Ananias and Sapphira, they go and they sell a piece of property, and they bring it back, and sometime in between, they, they colluded with one another and decided, hey, we'll, we'll say that we sold it for this much, but we'll just give this much. And so as Ananias comes up, and Peter is sitting there, and he brings the, the, the money to Peter, and he says, hey, here it is, and what, what was the motivation for them lying? I don't know, maybe they just wanted uh, all sorts of accolades and seeing how spiritual we are. Nonetheless, here's the problem. It says they lied to the Holy Spirit, and it says they lied to God because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And we know what happened. When he said that, Peter says, why have you lied to God? And he says, God struck him dead. And he hit the ground. And they took him out to bury him. And in the meantime, his wife Sapphira came in. And he asked her, did you sell the property? Yes. Did you sell it for the same thing? Yes. And, and God slew her on the spot. Before, before he killed her, Peter says, look, the men who buried your husband are coming in, and now they're going to bury you. What's the point? If we're going to say that church discipline is wrong, you're going to have to start with God. Because he's the one who instituted it. Why did he do it, folks? Because there is the need for purity within the body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you, folks, there needs to be a holy fear concerning sin. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And how in the world can we carry a message to the lost world about a God who is holy and righteous and will hold men accountable for their sin if the church will not do it themselves? You see, that's what's, that's what's at stake. How, how can we be honest and, and not be hypocrites if we're saying, listen, God is holy and right and just. And yet we will tolerate sin within the body of Christ. We should mourn over sin. Grieve over sin. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if you would look there. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Let me just clarify that. Treat him like a lost man. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two or three of you uh, agree as in touching anything that uh, they shall ask, 
it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And we'll stop right there. Let me just make a couple of points about this. This is the Lord's own words concerning what we are to do when there is sin inside the church. Now understand this, this is not that, you know, Steve came up and I asked coffee, you know, I asked him to have coffee and he goes, I don't want to have coffee with you. And I would go to him and say, well, that's a sin. No, that's just maybe he doesn't want to have coffee with me. What we're talking about here, when the Bible says, if, you know, somebody does something wrong, what we're talking about here is sin. Can I tell you this, that somebody's sin ought to be an affront to you? I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Why should it be an affront to you? Because it's an affront to the Lord. Anytime that we don't take serious sin, it's like saying, did his sacrifice really matter? Do we grasp the concept that it is our sin that put our Savior on the cross? And so when sin is there, listen, it's not just about going and, and so that they're better. It is also so our Lord is glorified. And when we downplay sin, folks, it takes away from the sacrifice. It takes away from the holiness of Almighty God. And so the Lord lays it out. He says, if you have a brother that you have fault with, go to him. In other words, confront him in that. But listen, it is not the idea that so many people have about confronting somebody who is in sin. Can I tell you, I've done it. I know what it feels like. I was talking to another pastor this week about this very issue to where there was a man in his church who was leaving his wife, leaving their children behind. And he loved that man and he loved that family. Family, and he went and stood outside that man's work, standing at his car, and he told me, he says, I thought I was going to throw up because I was so sick over what I was fixing to have to do. It's not like the, that we run to somebody and say, I got you, man. We need to say what Paul says, I'm mourning over it, I'm broken over it, I'm hurting over this because you are hurting yourself in the name of Christ. Amen. Confrontation is not a good thing. None of us like it. Well, it is a good thing. None of us like it. I remember I was at uh, uh, where I was going to church before I came here to step back out of retirement and back into the pulpit again. And the guys, you know, knew, knew my history, you know. I was pretty fresh back from Afghanistan. And they were saying, hey, look, if you got a problem, give Jim a call. He'll handle it. And I, and I looked at him, I said, Whoops. I said, I, I don't know what you guys think. I don't like confrontation. I, I don't enjoy it. And I don't go looking for it. But there are times that we must step up to the plate because Christ has called us to do that. Amen. And he says, go to them. And if you, they hear you, you've won him over. In other words, if they say, you're right, I see where I am in sin. Now listen, it's not based on what I think, right? Or nor is it based on what you think, nor is it based on what the church thinks as a whole. It is based on what the word of God says. I remember some time ago, 
by some time ago, I mean 40-some years ago, back when I first got saved, and you might say that I had kind of flirted on the other side of the law, and, and uh, a lot of my old ways and looks remained the same, and, and uh, still, I don't care if a guy's got long hair or not, but my hair back then was about down to here, right? And, and uh, I used to come into church smelling like burnt rope. If you catch my drift, some of you will get that here a little bit later, Right? And I remember after I got saved, I didn't cut my hair off. And I remember, as uh, the, the, the preacher said, one of the old snaggletooth women came up to him and says, when are you going to tell that boy to cut his hair? And he says, uh, I won't. And I went to him one time and I said, Pastor, I says, I, I, I'm thinking about cutting my hair. And I said, how much should I cut? And he goes, cut the rebellion off. He said, if it's an inch, cut an inch. If you need to shave your head, shave your head. It's pretty good advice, isn't it? Let the Holy Spirit do the work. Maybe one of these days I'll grow those curly locks back for you guys. <laughs> that would not happen. I would, I would wake up like Samson in the morning and there would, it would be sheared off by a lovely little brunette. But we confront... If that person doesn't, it says we take two more with us, one or two more. You know why? Because the Bible says that we establish every word by a witness. In other words, it's not a he said, a he said, she said. It's we are saying this was confirmed by more than one person. If they don't hear it then, it says take it to the church. Now, let me just do something for clarification here. You guys, you guys tracking with me? Let me give you a little clarification because sometimes these scriptures starting in verse 18 are often taken out of context. In context, they are dealing with discipline in the church, right? And people have taken these out and set them in different little places. For instance, verily I say unto you, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be like bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on her shall be loosed in heaven. That doesn't mean I can go out and that this scripture is telling me I can pray and like a, like a prophet say, I'm binding the clouds up that they can't rain anymore. That is not what it is saying. In context, what it means is this, that you, whatever you decide in the church concerning that sin, after it has been established by more than one witness, two or three, that there is an unrepentant believer. You buy what is bound in what you say is bound, and what you loose in what you say is loosed. In other words, if you bind them and put church discipline on, it is binding. If they repent and they come back and they say they are loosed from that sin, they are loosed from that sin, which means we don't hold it against them. All right? I hope that's a clarifying moment. Because I've heard that misquoted so many times. And again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching a thing, it shall be asked. Listen, let me just say again. People say, man, if we just pray for this, touch on it. We agree that it's going to happen. Really? I've prayed for people to be healed of cancer. And I've seen cancer take them. What is it talking about again? It's talking about an issue of discipline. When you come to the agreement about disciplining someone, he says, if two or three are in agreement as in touching, that thing is done. 
And then finally, where there are two or three gathered in my name. Listen, can I tell you this? I can be by myself and Jesus Christ is there because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right? Amen. So please, you, know, you can pull your out. Hey, I can, you know, don't, don't come out and whoop somebody up with your new information on this, right? You may have already known that. But just understand, that's what the, in context what it's talking about. And it clarifies a lot of things. So I, I remember when I was young, man, I, I remember praying for a truck to get unstuck. Guess what? It didn't get unstuck. <laughs> I didn't understand the principles of what were going on here. Right, this is just a side note. Discipline is always, listen, discipline is always for the purpose of driving the person to repentance in order that they're restored. And if it's done for any other reason, they've missed the point. But this church was rejoicing over sin, thinking that they were really kind of a modern thinking people. Note what he says there. Let's go back to our text again. And he says that turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Folks, I, I want you that to settle in. That is talking about taking a brother or sister in Christ who is an unrepentant sin. I mean, kind of an in-your-face type of, no, I will not repent. And he says, you take that person and you turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And can I tell you what that reads out if you go back and read it in the original? It means that it is for the destruction of the flesh. Exactly what it says in the English. In other words, it is game on. And Satan can do anything he wants to within the sovereignty of God's yes or no. Can't take his soul, right? If he's a believer. Let me get an amen, right? Once saved, you're truly saved. If you're a true believer, nobody can take that away. You know, Christ made that clear. Paul makes that clear. But can I tell you, he says, listen, you turn them over even to the point of death, right? Isn't that what, isn't that what John said? We learned that in 1 John. He says, there are some, he says, there's a sin unto death. The, the good news is potentially this, this man repented because they're in 2 Corinthians, we find where Paul tells them, Hey, restore him back gently. Restore that one. We don't know if it was him. We hope it was. But the point is, he came to a point in his life because he had been turned over to Satan that he comes back. But you grab the, the severity of that? And he says to do that in order that his flesh is destroyed, in order that his spirit would be saved. In other words, that he be restored. That's pretty heavy duty. Allowing sin to go unchecked will lead to the spread of sin in the entire body of Christ. That's what it's talking about. He says you need to remove the leaven. You need to remove the yeast. He says because what happens is, is that spreads. It just gets infected into the rest of of the loaf. He says you got to cut that out or else it will infect everything else. And you say, well, 
Is there anywhere else that would tell us to do something like that? How about Ephesians chapter 5? Galatians and Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. I'll read them real quick. For I testify again. Uh, pardon me, that's not right. I was reading Galatians. I knew that something with circumcision wasn't exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5 and verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as it becometh the saints. He says, don't even let it be named among you. Look at verse 11. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In other words, don't have anything to do with it. Now, I could go on a whole, uh, get on my soapbox on some of this and say, man, some of God's people need to be careful what they're watching and listening to. Because it says, have no fellowship with that. Let me finish up with this, a refined rule. A refined rule, verses 9 through 13. And it says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. This is a letter, they call it the lost letter. Uh, God didn't see fit to have it added into the canon, uh, so we don't have it. But he had written to him once before and said, hey, don't, don't have company with sexually immoral. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs to go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not eat. For what have I to do, uh, for what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not judge them, or do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among you yourselves that wicked person. Let me just talk about a refined rule. Verse 9, we find that it's not a new command. He had already told them once before, don't have anything to do with the sexually immoral. immoral. Now, what had happened is, evidently, they began to think, okay, we're not going to associate with anybody outside the church that is sexually immoral. And he says, listen, now I'm going to come back and I'm going to refine this for you because you misunderstood. It's really kind of funny what they were doing. They were tolerating sin inside the church, and then they were, they were keeping arm's distance away from those that were outside the church. And, and he comes back and he says, listen, in verses 10 through 13, no, basically here's what it means. Know when and who to associate with. Right? Know when and who to associate with. We need to rub shoulders with the lost. We are the salt and the light in this earth. And I believe that oftentimes, listen, we may not be tolerating sin inside the church, but one of the things that we do is we kind of put this bubble around us and we say, I'm not going to have anything to do with anybody that's doing this. And Paul says, if that's the case, you've got to leave this earth. Because if you get out in the world, you're going to be in contact with people who are sexually immoral, with fornicators, with drunkards, with all sorts of people that are involved in sin. And he says, that is not what I'm talking about. Can I get an amen? amen. 
You see, the problem is not only sometimes in churches do they say we'll tolerate sin, but then they go to the extreme like the Corinthians were doing and saying we won't have anything to do with those outside the church. In other words, unbelievers. They are the very people we need to be in contact with without taking on their character and habits. I was telling Riley at one time where I was a pastor in Wyoming and I was down with a guy from, and he had no idea. I said, oh, you naive young man, uh, the Banditos. I mean, who, anybody here know who the Banditos are? Anybody? No? Oh, you guys are good for you. It's, a, it's an outlaw motorcycle club. One percenters. Hell's Angels. I know we've all heard of them, right? So Banditos and Hell's Angels, in fact, they were fighting over turf in Wyoming. But I was down in a trailer court taking the Jeep down there that day, the, that I guess matched the description of a be on the lookout for. And all of a sudden, here comes the local sheriff, comes up with a Starsky and Hutch, pulls up, gets out, and then he looks at me and he goes, oh, it's you. You know, he went to our church. And I said, yeah. But here, after I had talked to him, he pulled me over to the side and he says, what are you doing here? Messing around with these people. And I'm going to tell you what, your pastor got a little bit of righteous indignation. I said, I'll tell you what I'm doing down here. I'm sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing down here. You see, in his ideas, we don't have anything to do with people like that. And if we take that attitude, church, you see, somebody took the time to come to me and share the love of Christ with me. And we need to have that same attitude. We don't condense ourselves down to our holy bubble. We keep the bubble holy, but we get out of the bubble to reach a lost world. We are not to associate with those who call themselves Christians, and I'm almost done, who are in overt sin. If you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, or chapter 3. Chapter 3, and I want to read verses 4 through 11. Bear with me. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that both do and will the things which we note command you. And the Lord direct your hearts unto the love of God and to patient waiting for Christ. Now we command, note again, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the traditions which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us as we have saved, uh, behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither do we eat any man's bread, for naught but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, uh, that 
If any would not work, neither should he eat. Now here we go. We'll finish with this one. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. He makes it very clear that we're not to associate with those who call themselves Christians, but who are in defiant rebellion against God. That's counterintuitive to what we want to do, isn't it? It's just the opposite of what we want to do. Then he closes it out with saying, listen, it's up to us to judge on the inside. He says, it is up to God to judge on the outside. Let's just say it this way. We have a responsibility as a church that when we know that there is sin inside the church, that we confront sin inside the church in order that Christ is glorified, that a brother is restored or a sister is restored, and we let God deal with the outside world. Can we get an amen to that? And you say, is that important? Is that something that happens? Can I tell you that I've lived this scripture out? And all I will say is, I have lived this scripture out recently. Very, very recently. Never pleasant. And I remember even going and praying and saying, Lord, (laughs) here we are trying to build a church up. Revive a church. Revitalize a church. And now I'm having to go and confront people who are openly in sin. And then I heard about three sermons within about a day and a half on the very same thing. And it wouldn't have mattered because I'm going to stay true to the text. And it just happens that this fell in line. It wasn't pre-planned. I didn't preach this because something that's going on. I preached this because it's the next in line. And then next week we'll talk about lawsuits and how we need to handle those as Christians. Then after that we'll talk about marriage and how we need to do that as Christians. But church, can we just say this? Can we take sin seriously? And can we take the gospel to those who need it? If you take away something, that's it. Take sin seriously, confront it inside the church. Outside the church, all we need to do is show the glory of God. Point them to Jesus Christ. That he's not just a savior, he paid their debt. Tell them they must repent. There is, listen, let me get this out, because this may be my last time, who knows. There is no gospel without repentance. And that person needs to know this. They need to count the cost because it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. Everything. If you don't believe me, look at what he said. If you love mother, father, children, job, anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. That's a pretty tough message, isn't it? One last thing. When Ananias and Sapphira were struck down, it says it brought fear in the church and in the entire community. But after that, the church continued to grow. You know what it helped do? It kept people away that were just looking for an easy fix. And it brought people who were going to be followers of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you for the patience of your people, for allowing me to come in and share the word. 
God, I pray this morning that uh, you would speak to our hearts, that we would be a people that uh, better understand your word this morning. And because of it, God, that we would follow you with a hot pursuit. That, God, we would pursue holiness ourselves in our own personal lives and desire that your church, God, starting with us, would be holy. You give us that command, be holy because you are holy. We thank you this morning, God, for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the promises that you've given us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.